You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Amen. You can be seated. Turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, y'all bunch of hard-nosed, hard-going people coming out in this cold weather this morning. I'm glad you're here. Uh, that, ain't nothing to, that ain't nothing to, uh, well, blink an eye at out there this morning. That's pretty chilly, and that wind makes it a little worse. Galatians chapter 4, and we'll pick it up in verse 21. Galatians 4, verse 21. Paul starts out with a question. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, Do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically or symbolically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are in labor, who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at the same time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but we are children of the free woman. Father, we bow this morning thanking you for your goodness and grace. Thanking you, Father, for salvation. Thanking you, Father, for justification. Knowing, Father, that it was no work of our own hands. It was no good work we did. It was no no thing that we did that impressed you so much that you said, by all means, you are now my child. It was not any work that we did, but it was the work that your son did on our behalf. And our faith in him, our faith in him gives to us righteousness that we could have never obtained on our own. It gives us the ability to live out your purpose in this life. It it gives us the Holy Spirit living inside of us. It it gives us meaning and purpose and a path in which to walk. It, It is by the only way that we will ever be able to worship you in spirit and in truth because, Father, that is a work of your hand in us. It is a work of your grace in us, salvation is you pursuing us, forgiving us, setting us free, adopting us, making us whole, and that could have never come about by any work of morality on our part. So, Father, this morning, we recognize that when we came to you, we came to you desolate. When we came to you by faith, Father, we didn't come offering anything other than to just lay our lives down It's full surrender. And Father, if we came to you with anything else, if we came to you with any list of works, any list of good things we were doing, Father, you are clear in your word that all of our righteousness is filthy rags. So Father, the only way we could have been rescued is through your son. And Father, we are deeply grateful for that this morning. Got us in your word today. Thank you for the power of it. Thank you for the clarity of it. Father, I pray that you would change us from the inside out as a result of hearing and reading and applying your word. Father, we ask all this in the strong and powerful name of Christ. Amen. Charles Spurgeon was once asked what his favorite books were. Obviously, Charles Spurgeon is going to say, well, number one, his most favorite book is, is the Bible. But he said that the very next book that he values uh, almost as much as the Bible, a book that he had read literally hundreds of times by his his own account, was the story, The Pilgrim's Progress. 
this is a classic. Uh, I've been rereading it myself. I told you a few weeks ago, I've been going back and rereading all the, well, older stuff. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I've been reading through all of his stuff again. And um, knowing that this particular portion of scripture was coming up, I sat down and went through Pilgrim's Progress. If you're not familiar with this book, I would highly encourage you to get a copy, but make sure you get a copy that's an edition where they have updated the language a little bit. It makes it a lot easier to read. If you read the original, it's a little difficult to read just because of the English that was used. But the Pilgrim's Progress is about, it's, it's an allegory, it's a story. We're going to talk about allegory in just a minute because Paul uses that exact type of phrasing right here in this text in Galatians. So, the Pilgrim's Progress is the story of a man named Christian. And, and Christian and all the names within the story represent other facets of, of what it means to follow Jesus. So the idea of Pilgrim's Progress is the story of a man who is living in the city of destruction. Now all of these names have connotation to it that connect directly to our faith. So, so Christian is living in the city of destruction and he hears that his city is going to be destroyed and, and he wants to escape the coming destruction. And along comes a guy by the name of Evangelist. The evangelist comes by one day and he says, well, what you need to do is you need to set out from the city of destruction and, and you see the white picket gate, you see it in the distance, you need to make your way to the white picket gate and there you will be put on a path that will lead you to the celestial city and you'll be able to escape the coming destruction. That all sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? It's an exact picture of salvation. So Christian sets off on this journey and as he, as he travels along, he's confronted with different characters in the story. And, and these different characters represent different elements of what it means to follow Jesus, some of them negative and some of them positive. Well, as he's traveling along, and I'll kind of move forward in the story, he comes across a guy by the name of Worldly Wiseman. Now, Christian who set off on this journey to go to the white picket gate, the white picket gate represents the gate that leads to salvation and the gate that, that basically represents salvation on the other side of that gate is the narrow path, the narrow path leading to the celestial city. And so as Christian travels towards the white picket gate, all these people come into his life, some to encourage and some to discourage. And, and at the same time, before he gets to the gate, as he's going to this gate, he's carrying with him a burden. And it, that burden is, is pictured as though a, a weight on his back, almost like a, a backpack on his back. And he's just weighted down, and he wants desperately to get rid of this weight on his back. And, of course, that represents the sin in his life. Well, he comes across worldly wise men, and worldly wise men says, well, wait a minute. Uh, where are you going? And Christian says, well, I'm on my way to the white picket gate, and there I'm going to be put on a path to the celestial city, and I can get rid of this burden off of my back. And worldly wise men says, well, wait a minute. I've, I've got a whole other path for you. You don't, have to, you don't have to take this long journey to the white picket gate. You can, you can take this journey right over here. There's a whole other path that you've not even been told about. And worldly wise men tells him that on this path, it leads to a, a little town called Morality. And in this town, there's a guy there by the name of Mr. Legalist. And Mr. Legalist has a whole other way you can get this burden of, of weight off your back, which we know to be sin. Well, Christian is very interested in this. If there's an easier path that I can take, if there's a, if there's a way I can get rid of this burden instead of taking this long journey, then by all means, that just makes sense. So he diverts off of the path that evangelist has put him on, and he walks over to this city, or he's heading towards this city, called morality. Now, Mr. Worldly Wiseman tells him that there's a mountain that he must climb over to get into the city of morality where he can find Mr. Legality, and there he can have his burden taken off of his back. But he's got to scale this mountain first. He, he's got to overcome this mountain before he can get into that place, well, of where he can finally have his burden removed. The only problem is, is the hill that's before Christian is so tall, so massive, that there is no way that Christian can even begin to overcome this mountain. In fact, in the story, it says that as Christian looks at this mountain that he has to climb, he looks at it, and it seems as though the mountain is leaning over him, about to fall on him and crush him. And so at that moment, Christian is scared to death, and he, he thinks, I, I, I can't do this. There's no way I can climb this mountain. And plus, out of that mountain is coming voices and thundering and lightning and fire and and he's scared to death, and he knows that there's no way he's going to be able to scale this mountain. Well, what makes a story an allegory is that mountain represents something. 
It represents Mount Sinai, the law. So, so Christian is on his journey to get this burden of sin off of his back, and, and he's told that if he could just make it to the city of morality, that Mr. Legality will help him with his burden. But now to get there, he's got to crawl over the mountain of the law to get there. And when he sees it, he sees that it's impossible. There's no way he's going to be able to climb over this mountain. An allegory, and they're all through the Bible, uh, the, the allegories that you're most familiar with would be the ones that Jesus used. We know them to be parables. And, and parables, you think of the prodigal son. In that parable, uh, the, the son who, who walks away represents those who, who walk away from God and, and begin to live life on their own terms. And that life leads them to a path of destruction, while the older brother who stays at home represented the Jewish people who were adherents to the law and trying to please God by keeping the law. And every element of that story represents or symbolizes something else that we have to pay attention to. And here we have... Right in the middle of this letter in Galatians, an allegory, much like the parables that, that Jesus would teach, although this one is significantly different than a lot of the parables that Jesus taught. An allegory is a story in which the characters are the events. Uh, they're symbols, and they represent something else, events, ideas, people. And there's, there's all kinds of problems with, with interpreting these. As a matter of fact, I would argue that, or that my opinion is that this is the hardest portion of the entire letter that Paul wrote to the church at Galatia. And I wrestled with this text a lot. We went round and round this week in my study trying to make sure I understood it so I could communicate it clearly. And I'm still a little unsettled with it this morning because it's, it's a challenging text. And so what Paul does here is he takes historical people that the Judaizers, those who've crept into the church, who are trying to lead the church to adopt the law in addition to the gospel, these, these false teachers that have crept into the church, they would have absolutely embraced any kind of teaching from Genesis 16, Genesis 21, which is the story of Abraham and Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, and Isaac. They would have not only embraced that story, they would have been ready to hear any teaching that it flow from that book and from that story. But what Paul's going to do is he's going to take that historical setting story and he's going to take that and he's going to use that story as symbols to teach what he has to teach to this church. And that is that if you follow the law, if you think that the law is going to save you, it will lead you to slavery. And that we see that all the way back with this story of Hagar, Ishmael, Sarah, and Isaac. So he's going to take this story, he's going to present it in a way that's going to accomplish Paul's task and what he's doing in writing this letter and warning the church that if they go down this path, they are in, in fact returning to slavery. And so Paul will set up the story with facts from the Old Testament, and then he's going to shift to explaining what the allegory means or what the the story means and how he's going to apply it here. And then he's, he's going to move towards this, this premise of applying this text to this church. And the reality of what Paul is trying to teach here is that, that for this church who has found freedom in Christ, they have found freedom from, from keeping the law. And if you've gained freedom in Christ, why, why, could, why, why choose to go down a different path? Why not continue in the freedom that you've already found? And so Paul is going to use this Old Testament narrative to teach something very profound to this church and to confront those in the church who seek to divide it. Verse 21, he starts out with a question. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So what Paul does is he, he asks a very compelling question. The question is, is, is if you are so focused on the law, then, then what you want to listen to what the law says. So Paul kind of sets them up here in the way he's going to take this story and teach them something pretty amazing. So what Paul's going to do in verses 21 through 23 is he's going to set forth three basic facts that the Judaizers would have agreed to, that the church would have agreed to, and said, yes, that, that is absolutely the truth. So Paul's going to set out three basic facts from the Old Testament. He says in verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons. That is irrefutable. No one in the church and no one among these false teachers would have disagreed with that. He says that he had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. So Abraham has two sons. The first son's name is Ishmael. And, and Abraham has the son or conceives this son with a slave that was part of Abraham's household, and her name is Hagar. She is an Egyptian. 
Now, how in the world is it that Abraham, who's married to Sarah, all of a sudden has a child with Ishmael? Well, if you go back to Genesis 16, you don't have to do it right now. We will in just a minute. If you go back to Genesis 16, you have this story. The story is, is that God was promising to Abraham and Sarah that they would have a child. And as time goes on and quite a bit of time passes after God makes that initial promise and then God comes along and reaffirms that promise multiple times, Sarah gets a little antsy. Sarah gets a little bit impatient and and Sarah and, and Abraham decide that they've got to help God along with this. You've never done that, have you? That you need to help God out? Well, the story goes that Sarah comes up with an idea. The idea is, is that Abraham is, is going to have intimate relationships with this slave called Hagar for the purpose of bearing a son. Now, what possible problem could that ever bring into the household, right? I mean, that couldn't possibly cause any problems in the marriage or the home. Of course it would. But this is the story. This is what they kind of concoct to help God out. So Abraham goes along with it. Hagar then conceives a child. The child that is born is named Ishmael. Now, later on, later on, several years later, matter of fact, Ishmael's 13 years old when God comes back and reaffirms the promise that they are going to have a child from their own body. There is absolute chaos inside the home of Abraham and Sarah and now Hagar. It's an absolute train wreck, as you would imagine it would be. And so, Ishmael is 13 when God comes back and says, now listen, you're going to have a son. Ishmael is not the son of promise. This is not the promise I made. You have got involved. But my plan all along is that you and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah, will have a child. Now they are elderly. And this is one of the reasons that Sarah is thinking that God needs some help. They're they're both elderly and Sarah's barren. And how am I going to be able to have a child in my advanced age? As a matter of fact, the Bible describes Sarah's wound as being beyond dead. And so Paul sets forth these facts first, that that there's two sons, Ishmael by a slave woman, by Hagar, Isaac by his wife, Sarah. And then notice what he says next. He says, but the son of the slave is born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to the promise. So not only do we have two sons born, but we have these two mothers and the circumstances around those two mothers. The circumstances being Sarah was barren, that she for all intensive purposes, could not have children. And then we have Hagar, who's an Egyptian slave. And we have Abraham, who who is the leader of the home, and they concoct this plan that that Abraham would, would conceive a child with Hagar. And so right here, Paul says that one of those children was born as, and it was as a result of the flesh. What does he mean by that? What he means by that is that this was not God's plan. This was something that Abraham and Sarah and Hagar came up with inside. It was not God's blessing. It was not God's purpose. It was not part of God's will for them to do this, but they decided they needed to help God out. And so what Paul does is he says that this son Ishmael was born according to the works of the flesh. And he's exactly right. But then there's this other son, Isaac, who would be born of the free woman, and he will be born, and look at this, verse 23, according to the promise. So starting in Genesis 12, the covenant promises to Abraham, God says to Abraham and to Sarah, you will have multiple, multiple offspring. So much so that your offspring will be like the, the pebbles of the sand on the beach, be something like the stars in heaven. And, and yet here's, here's Sarah hearing this, and she's like, well, wait a minute, I'm barren. I've, I've not been able to conceive a child all these years, and now you're telling me that we're going to have so many offspring you can't even count them? And God says, I'll make you that promise. And years will pass. A lot of years will pass. Abraham's 100 years old. And they will be able to conceive a child. There's at one point where God reaffirms this promise where Sarah laughs out loud at the prospect of her being able to conceive of a child in her advanced age, but yet God made a promise, and this son who is born according to the work of God, not the work of man, Paul says that Isaac is the promised child. He is the child of promise, not the child of, of the flesh. He is the child by which my covenant will accompany him and that the nation will be built. And the covenant promises will be fulfilled. It is not Ishmael. That was a work of the flesh. It it is a work that you guys decided to do to try to help God out. 
But this son, Isaac, is the one where God had to intervene. And there was no intervention from humanity. It was simply God who says, when Abraham and Sarah comes together, I am going to miraculously provide a child in your advanced age. And that's exactly what God did. So Hagar was the slave woman. Sarah was the free woman. Sarah gives birth to the promised child through faith, while Hagar gives birth to a slave through the flesh. And that's what Paul is setting up. And, and this, this would not have been denied by anyone in the room. The Judaizers, those who were trying to add the law to the gospel, they would not have disagreed with this. They took great pride in the fact that they are descendants of Abraham through Isaac, down through David. They took great pride in that. And they took great pride in pointing out that the descendants of Ishmael, well, were slaves. But what Paul is doing here is he's setting them up. He's setting them up for what he does next. So now he's given the setting. Now he's going to move into the explanation of why he's talking about this. Verse 24. He says, now this may be interpreted symbolically or allegorically. Now notice what Paul does here. This is where Paul moves into the story that he's going to tell using these historical events to teach and to proclaim a story that's going to help them see the difference between Sarah and Hagar. He says, these two women are two covenants. This is where we see the symbolism. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. And now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Now here's what Paul's saying. And this is where the symbolism comes in. Paul says, think of Hagar as basically the law of Sinai. So think of Hagar as being the law of Sinai that, that God gives the law to his nation, to his people, there at Mount Sinai, there were thunderings and lightnings. The people were scared to death. The people had been told that if they even begin to come up the mountain, that they would die, that if their animals get loose and try to come up the mountain, they will die also. It was a time of foreboding fear. It was a time of where God was speaking on the mountain. They could hear the power that was happening on that mountain, and they were deeply afraid. And God was giving the people the law, and Paul says here, Hagar represents that. Notice he says Mount Sinai specifically in Arabia. That later on in the story in the Old Testament when Ishmael and, and Hagar are separated from the, from the family line of Abraham, they're asked to leave, they settle in Arabia. And, and that Ishmael has many offspring. Matter of fact, he has 12 sons, much like the nation of Israel. But they were born into slavery, and not only that, that the, his offspring would be wild. They would be warring people, the Bible tells us. He says, now one is Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. Notice this, that, that the law bears children. What kind of children? Children who are enslaved. So the idea is, is that the law itself, while it is bearing children, and those children are alive and well today, that those children are in slavery even though they think they're free. And even though they think that as long as they do the law, as long as they do good things, and as long as they can show themselves of having morality, they believe that they are free people. When in fact, Paul says, and he said it multiple times in this letter, they are actually enslaved. That they are so deceived, they are so convinced that by doing good works that somehow they're free, they don't even realize that they are enslaved. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and she corresponds, notice this, to the present Jerusalem. That present Jerusalem, that, that Mount Sinai law that Hagar represents, it's alive and well as Paul is writing this, and it's still alive and well today. That Jerusalem that he's speaking about, the present Jerusalem in his time, we're still seeking to honor God by keeping the law. Even though Jesus Christ the righteous, the Messiah, had come into the world, had worked miracles in front of them. Had, had taught like no one else had ever taught. And they should have recognized him as Messiah, but they didn't. They rejected him. And not only did they reject him, but they hung him on a cross. Jesus was killed because of who he was. They did not recognize him as God. They did not recognize him as Messiah. Paul says that, that the present-day Jerusalem then, and I would even say the present-day Orthodox Judaism today, is still doing exactly the same thing, still trying to keep the law to please God. But it's not just relegated to Judaism. We'll see that in just a moment. Notice what else he says, verse 26, 
but the Jerusalem above is free. Now, he doesn't use the name of Sarah, but what he's doing here is he's kind of contrast between Hagar and Sarah, Sarah being the free, Sarah being the one who was not called in slavery and therefore gives birth to the child, the promised one. She corresponds to the Jerusalem on high. Now, wait a minute. What does, what does that mean? Well, understand that the, the Jerusalem, the, the city of David, uh, the temple in particular, was constructed originally with the idea that it was a copy of the throne room in heaven. And so the idea was is that Jerusalem and the temple and where people would stream into that city to worship God on those special days, it was almost like going to heaven, almost like a, a foreshadowing of what eternity was going to be like and, and that God would dwell there and meet there with his people. And he says here, but there is a Jerusalem above that is free. That what happened on the Jerusalem below is they become so focused on keeping the law that they lost their way. They, they took what God gave them as a, as a way to honor him and worship him. They took that law and they turned it into a requirement by which God was pleased with you. And, and so what happened then in the, in the nation of Israel, what happened was they took what God gave them, the good law, they helped them point out what is wrong and what is right, what is good and pleasing unto God. They took it and turned it around and said, no, you must do this well, to be right with God. And it's doing so they became slaves, slaves to the law. But that Jerusalem by which the city was based off, that heavenly Jerusalem, it is absolutely completely free. Notice in verse 27, Paul, and this, this verse really, I really wrestled with this verse. Isaiah 54, 1. Why did Paul pull this verse into this letter? This particular verse, Isaiah 54, verse 1, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those, uh, those of the one who has a husband. And I wrestled with I thought, okay, is, is Paul stepping out of the allegory here for a while? What, 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 why is he bringing this text? Well, if you go back to Isaiah 54, here's what you'll find. It, it, images, it gives the imagery of a, of a Jewish woman sitting at the gates of Jerusalem who is not able to bear a child and she is in mourning. She is brokenhearted. She is in sackcloth and ashes and she is bowed down at the gates of the city, brokenhearted over the fact that she will not be able to bear a child. And in the middle of her mourning, God says to her, rejoice. Now, why would God say that? What Paul is using, how Paul is using this text here is he's saying that even in the fact that, that when you look at the church, and listen, folks, all down through time, all from, from, from Pentecost until now, when people look at the church, they see the church as being weak. They, they see the church as being something that is useless. They see the church as, as something that is declining. As a matter of fact, every year, without fail, I get the stats from the previous year about evangelism in America, about how many people are coming to faith in Christ and, and how many baptisms that churches are seeing. And let me tell you something, for the last... 35 years, that number is going down, down, down. And so you look at that and you think, well, well God, it's not working. That the, the church is dying. That, that, the, that not only the American church, but the global church, well, it's, it's seen its heyday and it's somehow in the past. That is, couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, what Paul says here is the barren one, the one that seems as though there's no hope, the one that seems as though they have nothing to give, the one that seems as though there's no children being born, in fact, has more children than the one who has a husband. Paul uses this imagery from Isaiah to say that the church is alive and well, that globally, globally, there are people coming to faith in places like China and North Korea. All over the globe, God is progressing his kingdom through the work of his church. The Great Commission is not dead. The church is not dead. In fact, what Paul says here is that the church is alive and well. But those, those who have turned themselves towards the law, those who have decided that, that faith is no longer, well, the path, that we're now going to do things in our own strength to be honorable to God, they have then turned themselves to slavery. Paul says, that between Hagar and Sarah, Hagar representing Mount Sinai, Sarah representing Mount Zion. And depending on which mountain you run to, depends on what kind of life you're going to have. If you run towards Mount Sinai, if you run towards the law to somehow please God and impress him and somehow base your salvation off of that, well, you have become a slave. You are not free. And not only that, but the law will eventually crush you, and eventually you'll find out 
well, after it's too late, that the law could have never saved you. Good works could have never saved you. So if you run to Hagar and Mount Sinai, you are running towards slavery. If you're running towards Mount Zion, which is represented by Sarah, the promise that is based upon God's work in your life, not about what work you can do for him, if you run towards that, then you find freedom, you find salvation, you find adoption, you find purpose, you find meaning in this life, the, the, the scales fall off of your eyes and you're able to see for the first time what is true and what is real and what is right. Paul's argument is that all those of faith are children of promise. All, all those who've put their faith in Jesus, you are part of this long lineage of promise that started, as Paul is arguing here, back with Sarah and the birth of Isaac, that we have become children of God. We have become, we have become heirs of God's kingdom, not because we're Jewish, but because of God's good grace in our life. And that if we run to Mount Zion, if we run to that mountain, if we run to God's grace, if we surrender to God's grace, that is what transforms us. But if we are running to the law, if we're running to Mount Sinai, then the result of that is more brokenness, more pain, more sin, more slavery, and it will never set you free. What I tried to do with this, if you read on verse 8, is where Paul then begins to make application of what he's trying to teach here. And in verse 28, he says this, Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. So he says to the church, he says, You are children of promise, not children of slaves. Ishmael and his descendants are enslaved to this day, representing the law itself, and that all those who try to earn justification and salvation by the law, they are enslaved. He says, That's not who you are, church. He says, like Isaac, you're children of promise. Verse 29, but just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him, he was born according to the spirit. So not only do we have Ishmael born of the flesh, this other, there's tons of contrast in here. I don't have time to go through all this. It's an incredible thing what Paul did here. Paul says that Ishmael's the line of the flesh. They tried to fix this and help God out by coming up with their own plan versus Versus Isaac, who's the son of the promise, who God intervened and provided a child in a barren womb. And here we find out, and if you go back into the story in uh, Genesis 21, you don't have to turn over there, but Genesis 21, there's this point where Ishmael's now 17 years old. And Isaac is three, and he's being weaned off of his mother. And, and it doesn't say much. There's only one verse. I think it's verse 4 where there's this indication that Ishmael is making fun of Isaac, somehow mocking him. Well, the tension had been growing in this household for a while, right? Sarah is upset about this whole deal, even though she's the one who put, the, put forward the idea for her husband to have relations with this slave woman and then conceive a child, and then everything, I mean, immediately after the child is born, everything goes off the rails inside this home. And for years, it's just been simmering and getting worse and getting worse. And that moment when Ishmael begins to mock this three-year-old, Sarah's had enough. The whole family's had enough. And under the direction of God and the Holy Spirit, Ishmael and his mother Hagar must be separated because, you see, the two cannot coexist in the same home. So in, in the story, the idea that Pleasing God by keeping the law, which Hagar represents, versus Sarah, who is, who is representing the new covenant, that it is by grace in our life and our faith that transforms us. We have these two mountains. We have these two women. We have these two sons. And it all comes down to an old covenant versus new covenant. And the reality is, is the two cannot coexist. And we've already talked about how the law is important and what the law was meant to do. But in, in the means of salvation, when it, means, when it means to be right and reconciled to God, these two cannot coexist. You cannot both keep the law and also place your faith in God for salvation. The two will not work together. So one has got to be set aside. One has got to be, well, separated from. And so in the story, Paul says that Ishmael and Hagar have to go. And in his allegory, what he's saying is, is you can't on the one hand try to please God by keeping the law, and at the other hand, express faith. It's one or the other, but not both. You can't have it both ways. So what Paul says here is that the older son 
was mocking the younger. And so what does Paul say? What does the scripture say? What does the Old Testament say? Verse 30. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. They're not going to both inherit because one is the son of the promise and one is the son of the flesh. And so what Paul does with this story is he says there's two categories, two possibilities here, and these two cannot coexist. So when I looked at all of this, I said the, the contrast here are many, and there's several of them. I want to give you a few as we think about what is Paul not only teaching this church, but what is he teaching to us. There's six contrasts. There's many more, but I'm just going to give you six this morning between Hagar, the old covenant, that of the flesh versus Sarah, freedom in Christ, the new covenant. The first one, the first contrast is freedom versus slavery. Freedom versus slavery. This has been a common theme all through this letter. And we've seen Paul argue over and over again that trying to keep the law for salvation produces slaves. What does he mean by that? What he means by that is that you realize that no matter how much law you keep, there's always more law to keep. And, and the more you try to keep the law, the more you realize that there's no way you can accomplish it. And so no matter how, dig, how far you dig yourself into this hole of trying to please God by doing things, by being a moral person, the more you dig that hole, the more you realize you're in a hole and the deeper it gets. And my advice to you is stop digging. Stop digging. You're enslaved and you don't even realize it. There is no level of morality that you can keep where God's going to go, wow, you've earned it. There is not a single person that will ever be in heaven. There will not be one person in heaven who worked their way there because of denomination, because of something they did. There will not be one single person in heaven on that day that could say and boast in themselves, well, I got here because of X. I got here because I joined this denomination. I'm here because I got baptized. I'm here because I memorized the entire Bible. There will not be one person there who can say that? Because Paul says there will be no ability for us to boast about anything in that moment. We'll all be saying the same thing, that if it were not for Christ, we'd all be lost. If it were not for Christ, we'd all be in hell. So Paul says, Paul says that if you go to the Mount Sinai to find freedom, you're going to find slavery. It's like running on a treadmill. You ever run on a treadmill? You're running and you're running, you're sweating and you're sweating, you're going and you're going, but you're not going anywhere. And if you slow down, guess what happens? You go backwards, and then you get hurt. Been there. It was ugly. I hope there's no video of it. But there was, I fell off a treadmill. You run and you run. And, and here's the thing. It's getting faster and faster and harder and harder. The incline's going up, and you're sweating and you're sweating, and you realize I am never going to get to the end of this thing. As a matter of fact, I'm not going anywhere. I'm in the same place I was 10 years ago, and I still think, I still think somehow that I'm free. You're not. You're enslaved. You believe the lie that Satan has told you that you're making progress when, in fact, you're backing up. Freedom versus slavery. Freedom versus slavery. The next contrast is the work of the spirit versus the work of the flesh. The works of the law are dependent on your ability. If, if you go to Mount Sinai for salvation, it, it's completely solely on you. It is completely solely on you to do better than the next guy or the next woman. Because, see, that's the thing. It's, it's like the old story. If, if, if you ever go backpacking with me, if you ever go hiking with me, I take you up the mountains, this question obviously comes up. Are there any bears up here? Yeah, there's bears up here, absolutely. Okay, so what do we do if, if a bear gets after us? Well, I don't know what you're going to do. I just have to outrun you. You'll get that later. The point being, I've just got to be faster than you. The whole thing with morality and going to Mount Sinai for your salvation, here's what you have to do. You've got to compare yourself to someone else. And as long as I'm better than them, as long as I'm just a little bit more, a little bit more better, a little, I, I'm, not, I'm not as evil as that person, right? The whole idea of this work of the flesh versus the work of the spirit, what saved me was not some kind of outward work. You see, no outward work can change my heart. I had a desperately evil heart, and there was no amount of good works from the outside that was going to change that. What I, what I had to have was a complete do-over from the inside out. I had to have a new heart. I had to have a new start. There was no way that doing anything from the outside was going to fix it. I tried that. It didn't work. You may be trying that. It's a work of the Spirit on the inside. And then from the inside, that change becomes outwardly. But if you're trying to fix yourself from the outside in, trust me when I tell you, well, it's never going to happen. You're running on a treadmill not going anywhere. 
Well, what about those? Have you ever thought about this? If, if it is Mount Sinai we're supposed to go for salvation, if it is works we're supposed to do, if, if it is works that bring about salvation, have you ever thought about this? What about those who have some kind of special need, who are physically not able to go knock on doors, who are physically not able to, to, to get on their knees and pray, physically not able to come to a church. What about them? Are they just lost forever because they can't keep the law the way you can? Will, will, will God cast them off in the torment knowing that they never had a chance because they can never do the works that you can do? Well, that's absolutely ludicrous because it's not about a work. So those who are physically impaired, yes. Because it's not based on works of the law. They absolutely can be transformed from the inside out. Legalism works from the outside in. Justification works from the inside out. The idea that you can fix that family member from the outside who is addicted. Many of you have tried that. I've tried it. That if we could just fix them from the outside, we could take these things away, put them in a situation. But listen, I've said this. If I had a dollar for every time I've said this, I'd have a few dollars in my pocket. That, that until a person is motivated to change from the inside out, and that comes from the Holy Spirit. Listen, if you're trying to fight addiction from the outside, you just fail and fail and fail. The person has to come to the place where inwardly they now see that they can no longer live with this addiction. And inwardly they are now motivated to take the steps be right with God, reconcile to God, and then seek help in trying to overcome whatever their addiction is. You can't fix it from the outside. It's got to be from the inside out. Work of the Spirit versus work of the flesh. Third one, heaven versus earth. Jerusalem above, Jerusalem below. Real salvation comes from above rather from the earth. We are not working our way to God. God invaded our world. Listen, if it was by the works of the law, Jesus didn't have to come. Jesus didn't have to invade our world. Jesus didn't have to spend three and a half, his year, three and a half years of his earthly life hanging out with the disciples. Jesus didn't have to die on that cross. Jesus didn't have to resurrect. If salvation comes from you, what Jesus did was a waste of time. You need to get this. You need to get it down deeply. If you can work your way to heaven, Jesus wasted his time and his life by being crucified. Are you ready to say that? Are you, are you ready to take that position? I would caution you otherwise. You see, salvation comes from above, not from below. Uh, there was a story one time of a, of a Buddhist monk who had heard about Christianity, and he was wrestling but with the whole idea of Christianity, this missionary was telling him about Jesus, Philippians 2, that Jesus lowers himself, comes to earth, lives among us to point us to God and to, and to help us break free of our sin and our rebellion. And the monk, he, he, he's, this Buddhist monk couldn't, couldn't, get, couldn't grasp it. And one day this Buddhist monk is out and he's looking at an anthill. And he looks at those ants and, and he notices that when he, he leans over that anthill, his shadow casts, the ants scatter. And when he backs off, the ants continue their, their work. And this Buddhist monk begins to think, you know, if I could just become an ant, if I could just become an ant and live among them, then th th they would understand that I'm not here to do them harm. I'm not here to hurt them or destroy them, that I, I want to learn from them. And then it was that moment he instantly understood what this missionary had been telling him about Jesus, that Jesus came to this planet to live among us, to point us to God, that we were afraid of him. We, we didn't understand who God was, that this God who spoke on Mount Sinai with flames and fire and thunder, it was scary. We didn't know what we had to do to earn his favor. And then Jesus comes and tells us that we already have it. We just have to put our faith in him. And Jesus represents God to the fullest extent. That anything you want to know about God, just look at Jesus and his life. He invaded our world for the purpose of pointing us to him. Heaven versus earth. Fourth, many children versus many more children. I've already said this, but from Acts forward, there's been tons of philosophers and atheists who've predicted the end of Christianity. Voltaire was one of them, and he said that in just a few years, Christianity would be gone. There's, there's been countless books written on how, how the Christianity is going to die off. And you know what we find out? After all these years, they were all absolutely foolish to the core. Because they think that this is some kind of work of man. It's a work of God. And that there are many, many children being born into the kingdom through the, the global efforts of missionaries 
And while it seems here in America that people are turning further and further away from God, don't let that cloud your view of what God is doing globally because what God is doing globally is the kingdom is still progressing. Children are being born, but yet at the same time, there are children also being born into legalism, the idea that we can work our way to heaven. I run into them every week. Every week. There are still children who are following this path of slavery when Christ is right in front of them and they understand Christ and salvation, yet they will not abandon their works of morality to surrender themselves to Christ. What I'm finding out more and more is about surrender. If I can do works of the law, I have this running tally of how well I'm doing, so I feel good about myself. If I have to surrender all to Christ, that's a little scary because, quite frankly, and this is what I struggled with when I was 16, I like controlling things. I really do. We all do. The many children of legalism and the many more children that are being set free. Persecutor versus persecuted. Ishmael at age 17 was mocking his brother Isaac. And here we have to this day not only people who say no, all the religions of the world, whatever God they're trying to worship, they're all saying the same thing. There's something you have to do to earn that God's favor. Whether that be Jehovah God or whether that be Allah, a false God. And so the idea of the structure is, is that all of these things that you have to do somehow tips the scale in your favor and that God will be pleased with you and therefore you have earned the right to be loved by him. All the religions teach that except for the faith that we believe and that is that it's by faith. And what's interesting is, is all of those other faiths have always, always persecuted those who have placed their faith in Christ. They, they, they look at us with, with disdain that we have freedom in Christ, and they look at us and they mock us because of it. Why is it that all these comedians and stuff that you see on TV, all these, these musicians, uh, why is it they openly mock Christ? Why is it that you never, you never see, you never see some music video of a guy dressed up as Muhammad mocking him? Why is that? It's because they only mock what they don't understand, and I would argue that they mock what is actually the truth. You might want to consider that for a moment, that the really only, the really only threat in this world to that of those who are lost is Christian faith and all the other religions are false. That's why it's mocked. Paul says all the way back with Ishmael mocking Isaac, he says right here in that same verse, he says, so it is now. That's exactly what's happening in the church of Galatia. These Judaizers are mocking them for putting their faith in Jesus and they keep saying there's something else you must do. It's not enough. And then finally, Inheriting nothing versus inheriting it all. Inheriting nothing versus inheriting it all. Legalism, legalism seeks rewards now. That's the whole point. The reason people like trying to be moral people to earn God's favor is not only do you have a running tally of how well you're doing, you can get applauded. Is it really that simple? Yeah, it is. That I can be applauded. I can feel good about myself. I can have other people feel good. Oh, wow, you are a really moral person. So what happens is, is they garner their applause now, and what Jesus says when he's teaching, what Paul says throughout his letters, is that if you seek the applause of men now, don't expect any rewards later. If you live your life to, to, to basically impress your people now, impress people around you now by how well you live, if that is your goal, not only you're enslaved to that, but listen, you are forfeiting rewards later. For those who are willing to be persecuted now, for those who are willing to be hated now, for those who are willing to be ostracized now, for those who are willing to follow Jesus unapologetically now, your reward is later, not here. Far too often I find myself longing for rewards now, wanting to be easier now. And the Lord has to remind me on a regular basis, it's not meant to be easy now. It's meant to be hard now because later in eternity is where I experience the rewards of living out of my faith now. You see, those who are legalists flip that. They want the rewards now. They want to be applauded now. Well, guess what? That ends when you breathe your last breath. And God, Jesus said, if you garner those rewards now, don't expect any later. 
So are you running to Mount Sinai or are you running to Mount Zion? Let me go back to Pilgrim's Progress and we'll close. So after, after Pilgrim or after Christian has diverted off the path and he goes to, he's on his way to the city of morality and he wants to see Mr. Legality because Mr. Legality can take this burden off of his back. He's confronted with this mountain. And this mountain, there's no way he can scale it. And this mountain represents Mount Sinai. And all of a sudden, as, as Christian is standing here and he knows he can't move forward, he looks in the distance and who does he see coming? He sees evangelist coming. And evangelist walks up to Christian and says to him, what are you doing here? Why are you here? Uh, that's an important question. Why are you here? You're not on the path. You're no longer walking towards the wicked gate. You're now off to the side. Why are you here? And they go back and forth in this conversation. And I want, I want to close with what Evangelist says to him. Evangelist says this, you were sent to legality, the son of the bondwoman. Now this is going to, Paul Bunyan takes this allegory and includes it in his story. This is incredible. He says, you were sent to legality, the son of the bondwoman, who now is in bondage with her children. This is a mystery. This Mount Sinai, which you feared would fall on your head. Now, if she and her children are themselves in bondage, how can you expect them to free you? If no one has ever been freed, if no one has ever found freedom and salvation by doing works, what makes you think you can? He says, why are you here? He says, legality, therefore, is not able to set you free from your burden. No man has ever been relieved of his burden by legality nor ever is likely to be. You cannot be justified by works of the law, for the law cannot release any man from his burden. Therefore, Mr. Worldly Wiseman is an alien. Mr. Legality is a cheat, and his son's civility is nothing but a hypocrite and cannot help you. Believe me, what you have heard from these stupid men is nothing but a desire to deceive you by turning you from the way in which I had sent you. You're either going to go to Mount Sinai or you're going to go to Mount Zion. Make sure you understand that whichever you run to for your salvation, there are circumstances connected to that. It's either all on you or it's all on Christ. It's either you working it out and making sure you tip the scale in your favor and that everything Jesus did was an absolute waste of time, or you run to him and you bow to him and you surrender all to him and say, I cannot do this any longer. That's the two options. It's either all on you or it's all on him. What are you going to choose? Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram.